0: around the abandoned warehouse building across the street. Construction workers dot the building with their colorful vests. Over the next few months, the building's broken windows and leaky roof are replaced. Its rooms are outfitted with shiny appliances, and the entire building is redecorated. You wonder who can afford to move into these pristine new apartments. You wonder who cannot. You wonder what happened to the previous tenants.
1: Housing is a critical issue in the U.S. The COVID-19 pandemic has made this issue even more pressing as millions face threats of eviction. Having a roof over your head and a safe place to sleep is fundamental to human survival. Some examples of housing issues that connect to health include toxic chemicals in a house like lead paint, pest infestations that spread disease like rats, high crime in a neighborhood, high rent and mortgage costs, threatening financial stability, and exposure to the elements from having poor shelter or no shelter.
0: For our two-part series on housing, we will hear from Lou Weiser, a resource navigator at 16th Street Community Health Centers based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 16th Street Community Health Centers provides medical, behavioral health, and substance use care to low-income individuals and individuals from all backgrounds. We will also hear from Jazzy Foreman, the program director at Solid Ground. Solid Ground is a nonprofit organization based in the Twin Cities metro area that uses a holistic approach to support families emerging from homelessness. We hope you enjoy our interview with Lou Weiser, an amazing public health professional, advocate, and activist.
1: Before we get started though, here's a quick quiz. There are about 21 million renter households in the US, according to the Aspen Institute. On average, how many evictions are there in the U.S. each year?
2: My name is Lou, and I currently am working as a resource navigator um, at 16th Street Community Health Center. And I'm working on a project called um, Social Determinants of Health and specifically working on addressing social determinants of health um, with regards to housing, um, with regards to food access and food sovereignty, as well as different allied health programs.
0: For context, social determinants of health are conditions in the environments in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health. Examples include access to healthcare and education, neighborhoods, connection to community, and economic status.
1: And would you be able to tell listeners a little bit more about what a social determinant of health is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we realize that 20% of someone's health comes from the direct health care that they receive. 30% of that um, comes from health behaviors. 10% of that comes from built and natural environment, or physical environment. And then 40% come from socioeconomic factors. And and so within that, that includes income, um, familial relations, um, workplace environments, and housing. Um, And so it's well... Established that housing is perhaps the most important social determinants of health um, in terms of the impact that it has on one's overall quality of life and family quality of life. Um, so, what we're doing, um, the project that I'm currently working on, the Wisconsin Partnership Program, um, is to address um, social needs, screening program, and patient navigation um, to address those needs. And so, if you can see here, there's in this um, in this poster there is a sample of the screening document, and it's a double-sided in Spanish and English um, document that is presented to patients, um, and then it's an eight-question questionnaire which asks different things about housing, stress, relationships, legal needs, um, and then we take that information back and see if we can provide. Um, social service resources to um, patients that might not be privy to those resources that have a um, self-described need.
3: And how did you become interested in in this work?
2: Yeah, so I guess I got interested from, I guess, two different directions that kind of converged. Um, My interest in biology was mainly looking at epidemiology um, and looking at how structural determinants influence health. Um, And then also I got sort of interested from a grassroots activism perspective because uh, housing activism and housing needs are something that are constantly undergoing vast changes both in in my hometown of Milwaukee and also across the country.
1: So what forces do you think impact housing?
2: We have these macroeconomic changes um, that are driving disparities in income and wealth and also expenses. Um, in part, and part of these forces are um, caused by um, macroeconomic changes such as globalization, um, increased costs of higher education, and deindustrialization. The trend in my neck of the woods and much of the industrial Midwest and Northeast has been one of deindustrialization companies where that were the sort of bread and butter and the economic backbone of many towns from Detroit, Michigan, to Akron, Ohio, to Buffalo, New York, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Dayton, Ohio um, are where the you know manufacturing was the core essentially the the core of jobs in these areas. But as we've seen, because of these larger global capitalistic trends, we see um, those jobs are no longer viable. They no longer exist because they've either been automated, outsourced, or eliminated altogether. And so you see sort of a combination of impersonal, right? These sort of impersonal um, forces that create situations of economic violence, and also personal elements in, in cities like Milwaukee, but also cities like um, Minneapolis and St. Paul. And f- frankly, almost every major city, 200 cities across the US have been affected um, by intentional public policy um, and through um, forms of homeowner di- discrimination.
0: Boo mentioned a great resource here for those who are interested in learning more about home ownership discrimination. He recommends the film Segregated by Design, which is based on the book The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. They look at the history of law and policy and the role of government in segregating housing in cities.
2: Sometimes segregation is sort of this de facto product of um, individuals making choices that are not necessarily um, intentionally meaning, like intentionally malice, but actually we see um, segregation where actually the government and federal policy enforced segregation and constructed the situation of um, segregation through also different practices such as blockbusting, um, redlining, and um, price gouging. And so we see in, in how this relates to housing then is we see a disproportionate amount of people that are laid off and affected by these macroeconomic forces. And then we see uh, an erosion of the housing stock where people then aren't able to afford their mortgages. They're not able to afford to maintain a healthy, um, uh, a, effectively a healthy um, living environment. So we see how all these forces then, you know, um, they're not immediately present. And so you see sort of both ends, um, or you might not be able to see how these different forces are linked together. Um, but then we see how health disparities, um, specifically health disparities in um, America, are then driven by these massive capitalistic forces. Also looking at evictions as not just these isolated things that are are responsible, um, that are the results of individual attitudes, but as a larger pattern and a larger structural issue that we need to confront um, collectively.
3: Important to see all of those linkages and understand that everything is is connected um, to our economic policy and historical Mm. relevance. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, you already touched on this a bit, but um, talk a little bit more about how historic biases affect housing. I know you mentioned policies like redlining. I'm wondering if you could go in a little bit more detail about that and maybe, you sort of Milwaukee as a, a case study for that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, if you may um, have, there are two excellent books specifically about this topic. One is *The Color of Law* by Richard Rothstein, and the other one is *Evicted* by Matthew Desmond. Um, and there's also an excellent resource that's done. I believe it's um, it's called the EvictionLab.org, um, which is a project. Um, by Matthew Desmond to understand the linkages between um, eviction and housing, and housing as a social determinant of health. Um, and so um, the lack of affordable housing is considered one, uh, sits at a root cause of social problems, from poverty to homelessness, to educational disparities and healthcare Um, This means that understanding eviction crisis is critical to effectively addressing these problems and reducing inequality. Um, However, before we had really good data on this information, little was known about the prevalence of eviction in America. So studying these causes and consequences on a national level was impossible. And I think this is a, right, I think that, um, I think the environment and built environment is is my sort of interest this my silo right within public health but I think one thing that we're um seeing across the public health paradigm is understand looking at different social determinants of health as epidemics so poverty as an epidemic right sexism as an epidemic Um, racism as a public health um, crisis and epidemic And so if we begin to look at um, evictions and we begin to looking at housing insecurity um, as an actual epidemic, um, that is one that is socially constructed, then one that is perhaps constructed like a virus or infectious disease, um, we can think about how we can solve these social epidemics using social solutions.
1: So is it looking at every case of, for example, eviction as like a disease case, mapping yeah. that, looking to see like where that's higher and, and lower across the country?
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that...
1: We've talked a little bit about like the forces behind the housing uh, crisis. We've talked a little bit about um, the historical and the Economic. Um, so, what are some? Why why is housing that something we should be particularly concerned about? What are the consequences of ignoring this? Lou talks about an image often used in public health. Here, imagine a river where people are falling in and drowning. You can try pulling people out of the river downstream, or you can go upstream to try to stop people from falling in the river in the first place. Public health focuses on stopping people from falling in or changing social determinants of health to prevent people from having poor health in the first place.
2: That, okay, so another paradigm, um, <laughs> public health paradigm, um, just so they're kind of, we're, we're kind of operating under the same assumptions um, is upstream versus downstream. That, um, you know, you, f- you have people that are flowing downstream into danger um and i think downstream is getting them out of the water before that danger and upstream is asking why they're in the water in the first place um and so that's kind of social determinants of health um and addressing those social determinants um and and i think focus on housing really is one of the most important things that we can ask in addressing why people are in the water in the first place um right is saying well someone comes in with pneumonia repeatedly um, and before, doctors weren't really addressing, um, well, why are you coming in? And it's like, okay, perhaps you have a drafty living conditions. Mm-hmm. And then how can we get to those sources and address those living conditions? And ultimately, I believe that um, you know we can, we can um, sort of attack that issue piecemeal. Um, by addressing individual circumstances and even smaller communities. But again, I really think that this is the product of economic inequities, um, is the reason for the the erosion in housing. Um, and I believe that community wealth generation is perhaps the best way to approach.
3: I'm wondering if you could, um, I think you bring up a really important point about community wealth generation. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe give an example of something that you've seen that's that's worked or, or a new initiative
2: yeah so i think community wealth generation is um creating wealth within our communities with that is not so right we have the foxconn right is our like globalization example and global capitalism example where you have this um you have basically a huge um, investment in capital into a community, um, and you expect um, a certain amount of productivity for your local economy as a result of that, which comes through an X number amount of jobs created and an X number amount of economic um, productivity or economic um, revenue, basically, for that regional economy. Um, but I think what is, what, is, what is really the actual value in most cases, both on a supply and a demand end, is in most cases, most of that money doesn't stay in the community. Most of it stays with the corporation. And the only reason why that corporation is there in the first place is because they're interested in profitability. And so that's sort of the, our you know, global capitalism example. And then conversely, grassroots and um, community wealth generation is using sort of the immediate resources around us um, and using principally actors from those communities to use those resources to create new products and services by the people in those communities for, for the most part, people in the community. So I think an excellent example of this in Milwaukee. And I'm sure that there are examples in the Twin Cities and all across the country and the world for that matter um, is an organization called the Sherman Phoenix. And that is a, it was a, um, it was basically a, a foreclosed bank and several other foreclosed buildings that were then collectively bought by local entrepreneurs and then established an entrepreneurial hub of over 30 different Um, small businesses and light businesses and restaurants that are predominantly owned by um, residents of the north side. So you have an opportunity here to invest locally and you have an opportunity to sell a product that is created by basically your neighbors and you're selling that to your neighbors um, and you're and most then of the wealth or the the um, economic vitality is retained. We like to think that these massive corporations, um, these massive international organizations or corporations have the answers, but I think the more and more we look to locally based solutions and immediate solutions, that's actually in fact closer to what is going to create more equitable conditions and ultimately healthier conditions for our communities.
3: I think Kind of building on um, what you said about um, local solutions, I'm wondering if you can share a specific example of how addressing housing might improve um, health in in the community that you serve.
2: Um. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so the lack of affordable housing. So I think affordable housing is something that we haven't really touched on yet. Um, but I think affordable housing, or um, sits at Um, the root cause a lot of those social problems and the lack of affordable housing leads to increases in evictions. Um, And oftentimes evictions lead to um, being expelled from a community. Children have to switch schools. Families regularly lose their possessions, um, which is also very demoralizing, right? Um, I think there is a book called... Um, there's a book called Health and Poverty where they, they talk about how job loss um, and being fired from a job can have one of the most detrimental impacts psychologically. And I think that's one thing that we're talking about too right now is um, in public health discourse is the impact of trauma and psychological trauma and also collective trauma and how trauma, how negative um, life experiences and negative, uh, negative events basically become internalized into our health.
1: And, um, I think this kind of goes, uh, in with that. Um, can you talk about some challenges to addressing housing in your community? I mean, you've been talking about how, um, these big, like macro forces are, um, you know, pushing up against uh, local efforts. I'm wondering if there are any other um, forces that you can think of or things that you've encountered just in your daily work, that has been like a challenge to addressing addressing this.
2: Well, I think that all of our um, primary needs in our society are provided to us because of the market and not because of social programs for the vast majority of that part. And so food, right? Um, Health care, um, child care um, and housing and education for the most part are tied into these um, to these to a free market economy and Just like any other economy or any other commodity, housing is a commodity too and I think housing um, is a bit of a unique commodity in the sense that it is immovable um, it's not a commodity that you can that is easily portable like education or, um, in some cases, food, or, um, um, and so housing is permanent. And so if that housing degrades um, and it loses value, you are stuck to that housing. And so I think that that is, um, I think that is a huge issue in my community is because um, actually housing is relatively affordable. But the housing that is affordable, is um, there's very little economic mobility. So in some cases, it's not a lack of, of the housing is affordable, but the housing is not quality housing. And the housing that is affordable is not located anywhere near where the job opportunities are. And where the job opportunities are, there is very ineffective and frankly, um, politically Um, detoured or stunted mass transportation. So you have a situation where um, I think in Milwaukee and also in the Twin Cities and Chicago um, and a lot of other Northern cities, such as Philadelphia, um, is that you have a high degree of hoarding of economic opportunity away from low-income communities. And so I think that that's a huge, that makes a huge, huge impact on, um, on housing and ho- overall health disparities is because where we see the greatest disparities in different communities, economic or housing or um, economic mobility, we tend to see the highest rates of health disparities. Uh, case in point is Chicago which is um, in many ways I, I tend to think as an analog to Milwaukee, It's, but scaled up, um, is that, you know, in, um, in Chicago, you know, from one end of the red line to another, you see a 30 year difference in life expectancy from, I believe, Streeterville Station to um, the Southwest communities of the city of Chicago one person would expect to live to 60 and the other person would expect to live to 90
3: I'm wondering if you can share maybe um, some hopeful activities that are being done um, to address housing maybe in Milwaukee maybe in Chicago
2: yeah absolutely I'm not not too depressing here um, yeah I mean I mean it's it's sad. But I think it's only depressing if we say that the circumstances today are what they will be tomorrow that if we say that if we allow ourselves to become complacent and in effect complacent, we become complicit in these um, oppressive and inequitable systems. I think that in terms of what it what you know where there are light spots um, in these initiatives, I think that I don't think one Place has all the answers. I think that there are um, different communities, both globally and in the U.S., that are experiment have experimented with different things and um, are um, have have you know some of those experiments have been failures, some of them have been successes. I think we can learn from each other, and I think that that is um, in effect perhaps one of the blessings of globalization and internationalism and an increasingly connected world is we now have the ability to connect and share information in a way that we never have been able to before. Case in point, talking over this digital conference right now um, during the midst of of social distancing. Um, And so we now have the ability to share information and hopefully then share solutions um, and share knowledge and share insights on our collective problems. For example, um, there are examples of that in Seattle where there's rent control and um, New York, which is very high cost of living with rent control. And also um, communities like Porto Alegre in actually the South of Brazil that has had very, very successful initiatives with um, participatory budgeting and participatory Um, income and universal basic income.
1: According to participatorybudgeting.org, participatory budgeting is a democratic process in which community members decide on how much to spend as part of a public budget. It gives people real power over money. An economics paper by Anthony Atkinson, published in 1996, proposed participatory income as distributing income based on how much an individual contributes to a country's economy. This includes services like education and caretaking. It's similar to universal basic income, except individuals have to provide a service in exchange for the money they receive. Participatory budgeting is now used
0: widely throughout the world, particularly in municipal contexts. For example, the New York City Council uses participatory budgeting to allocate around $35 million of taxpayer funds annually.
2: And so I think that we are seeing in, in the US, um, I think that personally, Um, and this is a very, I think, a political opinion. Um, I think universal basic income is one of the best possible solutions to address these inequities because it gives purchasing power to the people in those communities to make their own decisions, which um, if you look statistically are oftentimes to provide basic needs, which the market does not provide them at an ethical cost. Um, So there's a pilot program here in Milwaukee to provide um, several dozen families with universal basic income and those pilots have been successfully dressed in both in Stockton, California, and I believe Sacramento, California. Um, and so I think the more, I think different solutions work different because every community has, is, has unique problems and unique circumstances, uh, similar problems, but unique circumstances. And so I think people We need to be thinking, people in our communities need to be thinking critically about what we can be doing better. What are we doing to improve the circumstances of our neighbors, of our own condition? And so we need to be figuring out grassroots solutions to meet the needs of our community in a way that is specific to our communities.
1: So you were talking a little bit about some um, really hopeful initiatives and um, some awesome uh, work around like the universal income um, and and some research being done. How do people that are working to address housing partner with other areas of public health? So I guess um, I think that initiative is a great example of how people who work kind of in economics are working with people who are addressing housing. Are there any other like partnerships that you've seen?
2: Um, yeah, so there are, in addition to the Milwaukee-Wisconsin um, Partnership Program, which is the umbrella um, partnership between the Medical College of Wisconsin, the, another great organization um, is called the Center for Urban Population Health, um, which is a research think tank um, here in Milwaukee. Um, and that they are looking at creating um, and using research to better inform solutions to address urban health Um, in Milwaukee and communities all across the country. Um, And so I think that, um, I think that those kind of partnerships, right, I think that there are partnerships that are knowledge creating and knowledge building. Um, I also think that there are partnerships in government and any sort of bureaucracy, whether it's higher education or government or, um, or um, nonprofits, you see a lot of Silofication, right? You see like everybody is operating um, even within one, like I work um, at a community-based health clinic and a lot of people are working on a lot of similar issues, but they're not communicating across departments. So I think we actually have more than enough agents working on this. I think it would be more effective if we pool our resources and pool our knowledge so that we're working less on this plane of competition we are where we are different organizations are vying for scarce resources but instead working more collaboratively to pool our resources to develop common solutions and you know i sometimes think that um i really question you know sometimes through the whole nonprofit industrial complex, because just like for-profit companies, nonprofits are vying sometimes for federal grant dollars, which is operating again in an economy of scarcity, instead of um, asking why do we have a set amount of grant funding to begin with and who is responsible for allocating those funds. And why not have more funds to begin with, and not have a competition between community organizations that are all trying to service uh, poor and marginalized folks? So I think that you know we're you um, know you know we're we're um, we're making. <laughs> I think sometimes we, we have these situations where we we um, are pit we are pit against each other. So you know across the board we operate under these economic terms and economic standards. And I think that if we really begin to think profoundly about ways we can structure society on a bit larger, both on small scales, right? Like thinking on the, that community, think about that community wealth generation still, and then think about in these larger scales on why it is that we have scarce resources for social services. Why do we have an abundance of consumer products when we don't even have enough um, to allow for programs of social welfare and giving quality education to our children.
3: Thank you. I think you've given our listeners a lot to think about in terms of how this current situation has come about and mm-hmm. and what factors are influencing it and, and how it can maybe change for the better in the future. I'm mm-hmm. wondering on an individual basis um, I think we'll maybe close with this question since I know we're running out of time, but Mm I'm wondering if you could tell us how can individuals become involved in this work and support this work to address um, housing?
2: A lot of housing inequities come down to local government and local decision-making and policy-making. So really get involved, Um, you know, with your, I'd say, common councils make a lot of these decisions. Um, city councils make a lot of these decisions um, in much the same way that actually that is coming into national discourse about public safety um, is you know and that that's and that's another um, instance where we have um, deeper deeper circumstances of of creating a, a more deeply democratic society is putting power more into the hands of everyday citizens to um have agency in our reality and agency um, to better our, the lives of ourselves and our families and our communities. In Milwaukee, 80, I, th- I want to say 53 to 54 percent of our $700 million city budget goes to policing. And two to four percent, two to four percent goes to public health. So take a hard look at the place that you're living. I would say that um, sometimes we think about these issues being maybe far away from where we are, but really the front line is in your neighborhood. The front line for creating a more equitable society is in your backyard. It's, on, it's in your um, city hall of where you live because chances are that is a reflection of our larger priorities and so take a hard look at that budget and see what it is and write to people you know ask why it is that way and get involved we're about to be entering entering in the fall um the season sort of a budgeting um this is a time when a lot of city budget gets passed a lot of um town budgets gets passed and so this is really um a, a time to get involved especially coming up with the coming election and so yeah, take a, do a little bit of investigative research. Um, and I think that in much the, much the same way that different, com- different communities in different circumstances can be the canary in the coal mine for these broader issues, right? Like um, for instance, like Flint was a um, alarm for the prevalence of environmental justice and environmental water issues in urban communities that have been experienced divestment. You know, if you look at your city budget, you look at the cost of housing versus wages in your community. If you look at the prevalence of lead laterals in your community, you might not be pleased with what you see. And I believe that is not entirely your fault and not entirely my fault. But I believe that is also a diffusion of responsibility not to do something about it once you know.
0: Thank you so much, Lou, for taking the time to speak with us. We hope that this episode helped our listeners better understand the topic of housing. Please join us for our next housing episode where we will hear from Jazzy Foreman about her work as the program director at Solid Ground, a nonprofit organization in the Twin Cities metro area committed to families experiencing housing instability. Thanks for listening.